This week on Living the Call, Deacon Charlie sits down with Katie McCarthy, a wife, mother, and the director of marketing for Protect Our Kids, a coalition united in the belief that today's public schools threaten our children's welfare through the promotion of certain false ideologies and misleading narratives. In this episode, Deacon Charlie and Katie discuss what kids are being exposed to in the public school system around the country, including comprehensive sexuality education, critical race theory, social and emotional learning, and gender theory. Katie discusses her devotion to raising awareness about the dangers in public education while helping parents and the church find alternative solutions. These institutions have the ability to shape the hearts and the minds of the children. And you know, indoctrination is not necessarily a dirty word. It depends on what you're indoctrinating your kids into. The government trusts you to care for their food, their shelter, their medical care, their clothing, all the things that a child needs. But there's that one thing it doesn't want parents to have control over, and that's education. This is Living the Call. Katie McCarthy, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Deacon Charlie. It's uh, it's tough to be a parent, apparently, Katie, <laughs> or so uh, or so our previous uh, conversation went. Um, I took a lot from it, and there's certainly been a lot of news about it. You know, all of the different permutations of what are our what are our kids kind of studying? What are they getting into? What are the what are who are the players that are advancing certain things, good, bad, and indifferent? And so we had this sort of initial conversation, and I thought it'd be really cool to bring you on the show so we could talk more in depth about it. Um, where, by the way, where are you right now? Are you home or? I'm at home. Oh, okay. And home is? Dallas, Texas. In Dallas. That's right. I knew it was Texas. I just didn't remember whether or not it was uh, San Antonio. Suburbs of Dallas. Dallas is big. Dallas is huge. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a great town, though. Uh, although you probably have a lot more uh, neighbors than you've had in, the, in previous years. I don't know. Coming from Southern California, I had quite a few neighbors in Orange County. How are the Californians doing in Texas? Um... You know, it depends on how they got here. If they came here with a job, they're, they probably brought their politics with them. If they came here on their own volition, they probably came to something um, like my family. Mm. Yeah, you've got kind of like the running away from something or the running to something, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I know a number of people. I think Texas has been... A big point of departure. Uh, the other place I was in recently that was like just full of new people that weren't from there was um, Franklin, Tennessee. Franklin, that's a place that before COVID, um, my husband and I took our kids to Nashville. Mm -hmm. the, our four children are all musicians and we thought they'd love it. And we brought them there on vacation in the summer of 2019 with the idea, because in 2020, my oldest was going to graduate high school and my two middle kids were going to graduate I'm sorry, my oldest was going to graduate college and my two middle kids were going to graduate high school. So three of the four kids, we were having a triple graduation. So we figured, hey, three of you guys are going to have a brand new situation anyway. So like, let's move. Right. <laughs> that that Good didn't timing. go over well at all. It took the pandemic uh, to convince them to leave Southern California. Oh, wow. They were all born and raised there. Wait, so when you took them to Nashville as musicians, they 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 liked it or they didn't like it? It wasn't their vibe. They were young. They weren't yeah. into the, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of vice on 
what is it, Broadway there? A lot of oh, yeah. cigarette smoke and funny drunk people. And they were just a little bit put off by it. It wasn't, it wasn't their vibe. Yeah. No. Yeah. I have one son who's, uh, who loves Nashville. Uh, he's also got kind of a music bent to him. Um, I think it's a really cool town. Obviously it's a very much a college town, at least that stretch that you're talking about there. Right. So it looks like Mardi Gras on, on most, uh, most weekends, but exactly. it's, but it's an interesting town. Yeah. But Franklin, um, I was there recently for a movie premiere for a film called Journey to Bethlehem, which is actually really cool. Um, and uh, I, you know, like I do when I travel, I travel all the time, but I just started reaching out to people that I'd been connected with on LinkedIn, but I hadn't connected with in a long time. And I, I do a search on LinkedIn for the geography, right? You just kind mm-hmm. of filter it and you're like, wow, look at all these people who are in Nashville that I met in New York. I met in San Francisco. I met in L.A., And so I started kind of making the rounds of connecting with people. And what I discovered in the course of those meetings is just how many people have moved out there, especially, um, you know, people who are, you know, faith oriented or mission driven. A lot of uh, evangelical Protestants, too, in Franklin, it's like this little like Mecca of and a lot of media people, too, people Mm -hmm. who are, you know, working at Sony or Disney or ABC or whatever. And like they're kind of moved to uh, Nashville. Nashville. That's right. From L.A. live in Franklin. Kathy yeah. Gifford moved to Franklin. Oh, really? Well, that's mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah. So I always find those things remarkable where like these little cities come up and they become something. The other one that I keep hearing about is um, in Idaho, uh, Coeur d'Alene in Idaho. Has that hit your radar yet? Well, being in Southern California, a lot of people were moving to Idaho. Um, you know, Pacific Northwest is a natural destination for people moving out of the area. Yeah. But but that little town, Coeur d'Alene, apparently is like uh, it's unique. Yeah, and I mean, it looks beautiful. It looks mm-hmm. it, it looks like a lot of fun. Um, but I'm 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 holding out, Katie. I'm gonna stay put and fight the good fight in Los Angeles because if you I should. leave, then you know what I mean. It's like if I go, then you know then, what? I, we weren't running from something, Deacon Charlie. We were. Um, we kind of figured our kids are going to grow up and leave us because it's so difficult to make a living and raise a family and be able to stay home with your kids and raise them yourself rather than put them in government schools or daycare. And so we figured eventually all four of them would figure that out for themselves. And they would, our luck, one would be in Idaho, one would be in Texas, one would be in Arizona and one would be in in Nevada. And then, you know, when we turned 80, we'd have to pick a kid and move near them and totally ruin their life. (laughs) And how do you pick? Exactly. Well, you know, wherever you can afford at that point, I guess. That's true. And the combination of that or what's got the best weather. My solution to this, and if you and I chatted about this earlier in our call, I apologize in advance if I'm being repetitive. But my solution to this is that I think it's among the the sort of um, the secular world's big lies that you have to pick just one place to live in. So I got this idea from... Um, I remember coming across an article that Elon Musk was an investor, an investor, one of the original investors in a company called Boxable. And what Boxable does, I don't know if you're familiar, but they're basically modular homes or small homes because he lives in like a small home and they basically get delivered by semi truck and it's like a Rubik's cube and you open it up (laughs) and you put it together. Right. And the house costs, I think a hundred grand, 150 grand, maybe 200,000, like is their top model. And so I was thinking to myself, okay, in Southern California, you know, if you live anywhere, 
you know, west of the 405, and frankly, anymore, it doesn't even matter where you live. Right. But like, let's just say, for instance, you live west of the 405, which I, mm-hmm. I, I happen to. You're going to be paying, like, automatically every house is at least a million dollars. Usually right. they're closer to $2 million. So yes. I'm thinking, okay, you got a $2 million house. Why not have like three or four of these boxable things on a piece of land in a variety of different locations throughout the country. So that was my first thought. And then that was related to my second thought, which is travel is, if you've grown up traveling as I have in business and otherwise, it's so easy to do now. Like you can change your flight at the last second. Everything's on an app. You can like go from one place to another. There's flights all the time. And so it's gotten a lot easier to travel. And so as my, long as the government permits it. Well, yeah, exactly. Or doesn't or <laughs> or or doesn't maybe shut it down or whatnot. Right. But let's let's assume things remain this way, right? So that that was my that was my plan was I my retirement plan is to have like three or four small homes, maybe even these modular ones, in different parts of the country and just travel between them. You know what I mean? It's like it's like a bi-coastal squared, you know, just have like, mm-hmm. so it's not about money, having a lot of money, because again, one house is where I live is millions of dollars. So why not just invest in smaller properties and kind of live everywhere? So that way, if you have four kids, you can, you know, you could say you live next to all of them. That's a great idea. I'll have to look into boxables. There you go. There's a bunch of them, but that one was the most interesting one that I found. All right, Katie. So one of the reasons why so many people have, or at least a driver, let's say maybe it's not the core reason, but one of the drivers for why a lot of folks are moving to, or have moved, I should say, to states like Texas or Idaho or Tennessee um, is a lot of what's going on or is perceived to be going on. I think it's it's both, probably mostly the former, but um, in the school system. I know that you are that the, the head of marketing for Protect Our Kids, which is a, an organization that kind of dedicates itself to educating parents on the things that are happening, particularly, I would think, in public schools, but maybe in other schools uh, mm-hmm. as well. And um, I mean, where where does that, the idea of, you know, kids, be, how kids are being educated, where does that in your experience rank as a reason why people are kind of looking, for, uh, d- developing these migratory patterns that we've been talking about? It, you know, it's it's pretty strong. It's up there in the top three. Um, when we moved here to the suburbs of Dallas, my husband uh, started a pickleball club, which I'm proud to say he has over 300 members, I believe, right now. Wow. And in talking to a lot of the guys that he plays pickleball with, a, a lot of them came here for education. But the funny thing is they're a little disappointed in what they found. Hmm. Um, they're seeing that some of the things... You know, California is a pioneer state. Whatever they do, they do it first. On the upside, they're starting to fight this, this comprehensive sexuality education, critical race theory, and social and emotional learning, gender theory. Um, they're starting to fight this successfully. And so hopefully the other states are going to follow. Um, but it is spreading everywhere. And there's um, an organization called SECUS, the Sex Education something council of the United States, S E I C U S org. And they they want it in every single state. And if you go to their website, you will see that they are pushing to get it into every single state. Mm. How, how, like if you were to measure the size of the issue, right. And let me, I'll back up and explain why I'm asking. So th- there's, it seems to me, especially since COVID hit, like in March of 2020, there's been a lot of amplification and conversation about this issue. I under I presume that this issue of what our kids are reading and being exposed to has been a long-standing issue that's existed in a variety of different 
waves of intensity in the past. Even I remember as a kid that, there, that some parents didn't want, uh, I was part of an AP English class and we had to send home the books we were reading and get them signed off on. And I remember wow. some students in my class, this was, this was a public high school. I remember some students in my class coming back with the note not signed saying, yeah, my parents don't want me to read this particular book or whatever. So like, there's always been some sensitivity about this, but like, where are we now in terms of the the real size of the issue um, or, or the, how widespread this is. Like, give, give us some like real context well, there, to this. There are 50 million students in public schools in the United States of America. So that's the, you know, the government run schools. And I say government run schools because our Department of Education is federal. And so we have, we have edicts coming from the top. Um, that's a lot of kids and it's a revolving door of new blood every single year. Um, that that these institutions have the ability to shape the hearts and the minds of the children. And, you know, indoctrination is not necessarily a dirty word. It depends on what you're indoctrinating your kids into. You know, you have a child and you teach your child to say please and thank you and to say their prayers before bedtime and before supper and to take them to mass. And, and you know, I mean, you you potty train them, you teach them to tie their shoes you, t- you explain to them why they need an umbrella in the rain. You do all these things. The government trusts you to um, care for their, their food, their shelter, their medical care, mm. um, their clothing, all the things that a child needs. But there's that one thing it doesn't want parents to have control over, and that's education. And education became compulsory in 1852 in Massachusetts. And it was because at the time there was a pretty strong anti-Catholic sentiment mm. and the Protestant, you know, uh, Protestants of the, uh, the Northeast were trying to make sure that people weren't bringing their values from their home countries in and changing the ideas of America. So it was actually started for indoctrination and they felt that they were indoctrinating citizens of the United States of America. When you ask People, what, what's America about? It's about freedom. Um, freedom has become a completely different thing, as you know. Mm. Um, freedom is now, and, and for the right and the conservatives, we've given up on freedom. We've thrown in the towel. We've somehow um, surrendered to this idea that libertarianism is good, and you do you, and I'll do me. As long as but, it doesn't hurt anybody. Right. Right. But that look where that's gotten us. I mean, that's a that's yeah. a false, false idea of uh, freedom. Freedom to what? To dress up like a drag a drag queen and dance in front of six year olds. I mean, to sexualize children. That's what freedom now has become. So, no, it's that kind of freedom is dangerous. We, freedom is good with an end. You know, there has to freedom can't be the end in and of itself. There has to be an end. And in our country and our founders, it was about. Having a family in the, you know, in the economic capitalism, have a family, provide for your family, raise your family according to your values. And that's, you know, it was the, you know, the opportunity of what you could do. Well, well um, the, the end was written into a lot of our founding documents, right? It was life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Pursuit of it's happiness. like, that's the, this is what it was about. I think the best way that I ever heard it put, I forget exactly who did it because it wasn't for me, but, uh, but was the idea that the, the, the chip has changed with respect to freedom, that freedom was at one point the freedom to do as we should or as we ought versus the freedom to do what we want 
right? So now we've kind of traversed into this area of freedom to the extent it's understood broadly by people and people would agree with. It's like, you know, the ability to do whatever you want. Well, that's not real. That's kind of like that's slavery. Freedom. Exactly. Yeah. It's the opposite of freedom. Right. No, it's, it's that old saying, you know, why is it? I Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think a big part of the reason why that's changed is because the, the, the end, as you said, the end of all things from a Christian perspective is, you know, reunification with our creator. And once that, once that's gone or, you know, or it's clouded, then you can put a lot of things before that end, right? So my own personal happiness, pleasure, power, prosperity, money, whatever it may be, you can kind of replace that. And, you know, that's to the extent I've looked at this or analyzed this, to me, it seems like a lot of this is a question of having lesser gods. That's what I think this is mostly about and replacing God with other things because something has to drive it, right? When you and I talked briefly a while ago, I asked you to think about like, what, what's driving this really, right? Because at the same time, these things that we hear about, which we of course have every right to object to and fight tooth and nail to the extent that we can legally do it, et cetera. These are things that should not exist, right? A book, uh, you know, available to a kindergartner talking about sexual positions, especially ones among the same sex, like that's, there's no business for that being in there. But when I, when I, I try to think like, what is driving that really? Like what is happening there? And I got to imagine it's, you know, somebody trying to achieve some end that is one of these lesser gods. Like in my mind, that's how, I, I don't think people just get up in the morning and want to waste their time doing stuff. Like they're doing it for a reason. And, you know, what could that reason be to help us understand some of the thinking of what people behind these kind of movements and ideas might be trying to to achieve. Do you know? Do you know what I'm saying? Well, yeah. The ultimate goal is to turn our freedom-based society into a Marxist slash communist-based society, and that's why it's taken over a hundred years to do it because it's not an easy thing to simply replace freedom with Marxism. Hmm. But many of the many of the um, former Marxist thinkers of the day. Um, had learned from each other that the best way to do that is to attack the family. And you have to create victims. You have to tell people that, you know, you have to tell black people that they're never going to amount to anything. And white people are, they're, they're evil just because of an immutable characteristic called the color of their skin. Gone are the days of Martin Luther King Jr. where we're judged by the content of our character. And now we're back to the color of our skin. How did this happen so quickly? I mean, five years ago, if I told you that in kindergarten, they would be telling little boys that they could become little girls and little girls that they could be little boys and it could change day to day because it's a fluid thing that gender is separate from biological sex, you would have thought I was crazy. Mm. But these ideas are getting in because what they're doing is they're creating a new class of people called victims. So in 2016 in California, um, the, the California Healthy Youth Act, um, misnamed, uh, came into effect, which was to treat, uh, to teach children comprehensive sexual education, which eventually evolved to become gender theory very quickly. Um, and basically this was under the guise of the Obergefell SCOTUS ruling in 2015 that said that same sex 
Unions must be recognized in all 50 states, or actually marriage. The Supreme Court redefined marriage. So now, under the guise of non-discrimination and non-bullying, we have to change everything about our society. We have to, people can be whatever gender they want on their driver's license. And, you know, schools now have to teach, you know, we used to teach sex education because we wanted, I mean, at the very the very early stages, biology, eventually places like Planned Parenthood got involved and a lot of um, other special interests like CECAS. And they told us we needed it to do this to keep our kids safe, to keep them from having unintended pregnancies and these kinds of things. But now Planned Parenthood, the very same group that makes lots of money off of butchering children in the womb, they want to butcher children when they're prepubescent um, by helping them ch medically change their gender through their, I believe they're the second largest providers of cross-sex hormones for yeah. kids who are gender dysphoric. Yeah. And it's, to me, I think it's ultimately, these are all kind of deformations of, you know, what could be an objective good because where I think, see, I, I actually, and I, you know, I work very actively in the pro-life space. Um, my wife is a pro-life speaker. You know, we pray outside abortion clinics. Uh, my wife is actually herself post-abortive. She ministers to post-abortive women. I actually don't believe that anybody would say, I'm looking to butcher kids in the womb. What I think they would say is something like, I want to give people, you know, people freedom, freedom. from bad decisions, <laughs> right? Or, or or something like that. Um, or they might or they might say, you know, um, the, the economic realities of this woman mean that this child and she are going to grow up in abject despair and poverty. And I'm trying mm -hmm. to save them from that. So if you if you kind of chip away at that, assuming it's true and we take people at their words that that's what they want, then what they're trying to do is actually a deformation of a good thing. In other words, like we should not, we should want to uh, intervene and have a preferential option. That's what the Catholic Church teaches. A preferential option for the poor is an example. We should want to intervene to the best we can and prioritize those people who are in a bad way. That's like the gospel, right? That's what we should want to do. But the way of achieving it, right, in this case, is a deformation of what we should be doing. We should be taking the tough pill, walking with people, accompanying them, being there for the difficult conversations, being there to help them, but not necessarily, well, not in, in any way doing what currently happens with organizations like Planned Parenthood. But I think it's like a deformation of something that they believe is objectively a good thing, right? Like, I want you to not have to suffer. Therefore, this is my way to do that. And it's like, it, it, it's, we need to like cause a chip change in that because the initial impetus is kind of okay. There's like a good impetus in wanting people to like lead a fruitful life. But the, but the way to do that being this is absolutely incorrect. And so how do we bridge that? You see what I'm saying? Like, how do we, how yeah. Do we yeah, go ahead. You know, I've, I've, I've had a long time to think about this. And when I first got involved in this in 2018, I asked myself the very same question, why on earth, would anybody want to hurt our children this way? It yeah. doesn't make any sense to me. And over time, um, you know, I've read an awful lot and I've come to the conclusion that they're really basically to, I'm going to, this is an oversimplification, but there are the architects at the top who know that this is not good for the people. They know that this is destructive, but they want control and they want power and they want wealth. 
and they want globalism and they want Marxism. And then there are what I call the operators or kind of like middle management. Mm. And these are the Patrice Cullors. She's the founder of Black Lives Matter. Um, Ibram X. Kendi, he is a, he was just a couple of years ago, he was worth about a million dollars. Now he's worth over $200 million because of all of the training he's done to teach critical race theory, theory to the teachers, to the professors, to the K through 12, um, to get it in everywhere. Um, they're the operators. They're becoming very wealthy. Uh, some of them are doing it because they believe in the ideology. They think it's a good thing. Hmm. Many of them are doing it because they get on that gravy train. Like the superintendent of a school district here in Texas might make two hundred and fifty or three hundred thousand dollars with the, the greatest benefits ever. Hmm. And the State Department of Education and the teachers unions are expecting a certain level of performance out of that person. And they know that if they don't keep this job, their their life is going to change immensely from in terms of economic stability and wealth. So there are those middle managers who either some of them believe in it. Um, like for instance, the woman who was recently um elected as I believe she was elected as the head of the American Library Association. Her name is Emily Drabinsky. And she's a self-proclaimed Marxist lesbian who wants to see pornography in every single school library at taxpayers' expenses. And she's not apologetic about it. She doesn't hide it. So there are some who really, really believe in this like it's a religion. And then there are some who are getting so rich off of it. And then there are the masses. And these are the these are kind of the disenfranchised. These are the ones who who are generally in the schools or in the factories, in the, um, they're told that they're a victim. You're, you know, they're maybe a kid in school is a little awkward, particularly around puberty. You know, they have a lot of anxiety and they're not. And so they are, they become targets that, you know, you know, you're a victim and you should get special privileges and we have to protect you from bullying. And in order to do that, you know, they start to sell the ideas like at the very, to the very youngest learners, there's a book out there called, I know I'm all over the place. I'm sorry, Deacon No, Charlie. it's fine. And I'm, I'm sure you're going to mention one of these book titles that I've heard some uh, congressional and, and Senate uh, testimony about. So go ahead. Oh, that uh, yeah. I wasn't even going to bring that up, but genderqueer, <laughs> I think, is what you're thinking. Yeah, I, yeah, um, I don't remember th- the title. Mm-hmm. There are some just horrible, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. These parents <clears throat> get up at public school board meetings and they start reading out of these books that are in their kids' libraries and then they get their microphone cut because it's yeah, inappropriate I've seen, I've seen for that, the adults yeah. in the room to hear this. But meanwhile, the kids are hearing it in school. But in, you know, pre-K and kindergarten, although now they're calling it TK. TK, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, they're telling kids, and there's a book called Who Am I? And basically they say that, you know, when you were born, the doctor didn't know what your gender was. So he looked at your body and he made a guess. But later on, when you got older, you were able to decide. So it's a decision. Gender is a decision. And the, the whole Soji worldview is part of this whole, this whole queer theory, which actually queer theory, theory is, was started by somebody named Gail Rubin, I think around 30 or 40 years ago. Yeah, and this is so really this new. Yeah. been around for a long time. It's just now being implemented and because of the pandemic, a lot of people got to see what was happening. And, you know, so that's why we're all t- 
talking about it and parents are up in arms at school board meetings and they're being called domestic terrorists and everything else. The good news is in places like California, we're starting to see some real significant wins in the courts. And hopefully, you know, courage is contagious. And I'm just hoping that people stand up. I know when I first got into this and I was trying to explain to parents what was going on, nobody believed me. They thought I was a complete lunatic. Um, if I didn't see the actual curriculum myself and read a lot of the material, I would... I, it was hard for me to believe my own eyes. I mean, yeah, so I, I can bet. understand that sentiment. But now we know it's there and it's well, spreading rapidly. Well, the irony is that a lot of the the social media platforms, which themselves have been accused, and in many cases, rightly so, of curbing a lot of knowledge around this area, that's the, the irony is that that's the reason a lot of people now do know, right? Because people have uh, videos of teachers saying things in classrooms. Mm -hmm. You've got, you've got, uh, you know, internal, uh, you know, zoom meetings that are captured and then shared on social about what these plans are. Now I'm always asking, like, I don't know how pervasive that stuff is. Is that, is that 1%, 10%, 50% of what's going on? I don't know. But I think social media has actually given us the opportunity to see a little bit behind that veil for the first time. So that's sort of, ironic to me. I want to go back to something that you said, though, because this is really important. Look, I grew up, and you did too, professionally as a marketer. And one of the first things that we do in marketing is we try to segment, right? We look at who are the personas or the constituencies that we're trying to serve with our product or with mm -hmm. our campaign or whatever it is. You identified the sort of, let's call it for right now, the, the, the opposition, even though I think as Christians, we need to think differently about that. Mm -hmm. But let's for a second, just call it the other side. People who are, you broke it down. You said there's sort of this hierarchy bit, there's a kind of middle management, and then there's a sort of masses that, that, that are kind of part of this. If you think about those segments, you know, in, in a marketing world, there would be strategies for each of those. There would be a communication approach for each of those. There would be like, the best platforms to use for each of those. When you think about this, because in my mind, it, it can't be the same message for all three of those folks, right? So, no, or the same it, approach. No. So how do you think about like, uh, you know, because you're a thought leader in this space, right? So how do you think about how you engage with those different segments or the approaches, the strategies that you use with, with uh, those different segments? That's a really interesting question. And it really depends because um, a lot of, it depends on how far along the arc the individual is because once they're completely sunk, I mean, they've basically committed their lives to this ideology. And for them to admit that maybe this has been a great big mistake is really a difficult thing. And so, you know, like anything else, you have to apply the, you know, 80-20 rule and try and reach the people that can make the most impact the quickest because the opposition um, is moving very quickly. When I first got into this space, it was really a pretty small, it was California. It was California. It was growing fast in California. Moved to Texas in 2020 and, you know, to my disappointment, found that it's it's very much here. Um, the public libraries. In fact, if you go to our website, um, protectourkidsnow.org, there are tools there and you can see what books are in your public school libraries. Mm. Our libraries here are full of uh, hundreds of titles of totally indoctrinating into the ideas of critical race theory and gender theory 
and non-binary liquid or fluid soji type of worldviews, it, it's everywhere. And when these people start these schools, and there's a whole lot of new schools in Texas because it's growing so fast, um, they have to start a library from scratch. And they don't read every single book that goes in the library. They buy book bundles. So they buy these young adult novels for K through eight. And there's some very extremely questionable storylines in a lot of these young adult novels. And you're not going to know from looking at the cover. Um, but the publishers are oh, being sure. incentivized to make all these cultural changes. It's happening. All of our institutions have been attacked. I mean, the media, academia, K through 12, the military, there's you know, the Boy Scouts. There's no, no stone they left unturned. And we're just starting to really see the fruits of all of all of these seeds that have been sowed. And they're really, truly horrific. There's a lot of damage that has been done. Yeah. And even for those people, I think this is where the the mantle of our responsibility as Christians becomes, you know, a cross to bear, frankly, which is exactly what Jesus said our lives here would be, like carry your cross daily. Um, but where it comes up for me is the idea that even the person who's lived their entire life, dedicated their entire life to this, maybe directly or indirectly uh, cause a lot of damage in a lot of different directions is not unredeemable, right? And we also have a responsibility to them on some level to to minister to them and to help them, right? So I think that prayer as a, as a general strategy is in, for all of these segments, I think is crucial and critical. I think for the upper bounds, that kind of, you know, leader class that is sort of driving a lot of this, I think our own thought leadership, particularly around storytelling is really key as a strategy. Yes. And I don't think we do enough of that, frankly. We're, we're very clear, I think, about the things that are morally incorrect and that are wrong. And we should be, right? St. Paul said, tell the truth. But then he also finished that sentence with, in love. So tell the truth in love. I think we don't do as well in, in being, um, in offering the, uh, at least from, from a mainstream or popular level, an attractive avenue in, right? So give people something to desire rather than, hey, you know, you're doing this wrong. So I think like prayer across the board, I think thought leadership and story at the top, I think for the kind of middle band of this sort of managerial class, I think that's where you get into some of these challenges, legal cases. I know that the uh, the legal system can be a very big ally in, in this. Um, I it spend takes some time. It yeah. takes, but it takes time. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. It takes a long time uh, for people to have sort of a third party in this case, the court system say, no, 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 this is, this is too far gone or whatever it may be. And then for the people, you know, that are lowest to the, to the, you know, the sort of the masses, I really think that the approach there or the strategy there should be relational, right? Um, I know this because, again, I mentioned, you know, we've done some sidewalk counseling and prayer outside of abortion clinics. And, you know, our approach, um, my wife and mine, and, and not just ours, I mean, there's a lot of organizations that do this, is really making sure that those moms who are walking in there to, to do this feel seen and feel heard and feel loved and feel understood and feel prayed for, right? Um, and feel like somebody's like, actually, hey, I care about you. Like, I want to have a relationship with you. I think that relational bit for that lower band is really important. Um, I totally agree. I mean, most people who are, most women who are heading into an abortion clinic are just devastated. I mean, they're not shouting their abortions. They're not proud of it. They're not happy about it. 
they feel like they've reached the end of a road and they have no choice. And there's tremendous amount of pressure to take care of this thing or else. And the, the or else is just pile up. Mm. And it's it's sad. And, you know, you talk about storytelling. I agree. There are several organizations that have come up with some really powerful documentaries about um, following kids who've gone through transgender hormones and surgeries and what their lives were like and really powerful stuff. Social media is, you know, they're not, they're, they're totally censoring that. And mm. it's really impossible. For, I mean, you have to like, find these documentaries and then order a, a DVD for $20 and have it sent to your house. It, that's the only way to see some of these things, which is ridiculous. So we are fighting a huge uh, you know, behemoth as far as the power and the control because of the media and the institutions. So yeah, it's a, it's a, big, it's a big fight, but you know, there's a lot more of us than there are of them. And as I said earlier, courage is contagious. And if people would just open up their eyes and see what's going on, you know, you don't have to be a Christian or a Catholic or a person of faith or to have Judeo-Christian values and to understand the natural law. I mean, I believe strongly that God writes it on our hearts, the Ten Commandments. You know, if I am a cave woman and I grow up on a, a deserted island and some guy comes over and hits me over the head and steals my coconut... I know that's wrong. I don't like that. So I wouldn't do that to him. I mean, it's the whole golden rule of do unto others. Sure. If you're a human being on this planet, you should understand decency and goodness. And it's not, it's not something that is only reserved for people of faith. I really think that that's how the founders um, started our country. They didn't want a particular faith to be dictated to the people. And, but, but it was a given. It was assumed with, with this new freedom we're going to pursue good things. We're not going to, we're not going to become drag queens and gyrate to, you know, crazy music in front of young children and sexualize kids in school. Um, but this is, this is where we've gotten with this. It's a, it's yeah. truly, a, it's, it's probably the greatest danger our country faces right mm. now. Mm. Yeah. Because it kind of tears at uh, the, the soul or the fabric, right. Of that, of that social contract that we should have in this case as Americans, because we're agreeing to pursue life and liberty and, and happiness and uh, do it in a set of values or a construct of values that we all understand and that make up a part of our culture, right? So it, it, it can be devastating because it sort of attacks the operating system of the computer right. rather than the screen or the mouse, right? It attacks like the, the inside part of it. The, the other thing that's really ironic about what you said is that idea that the, you know, God's law is written naturally on the heart of man is ironically actually Catholic teaching, right? It's, it's, mm -hmm. It comes right from the, from the epistles of St. Paul. <laughs> he was talking about the Romans and saying, look, you know, even those who are not Christian or Jewish before um, know what is right and what is good. And we need to appeal to those things. And I also think that's very good. Look, I, I say Christians because that represents the bulk of the audience of this show. So I'm, right. I'm, I'm just using, and I know you are too. So mm -hmm. I, I use that because I feel that the one thing we can't do where we fall into the enemy's hands, right? And here's my point. We, we've got the devil's watching this fight and he's drop, he's, he's obviously strategizing behind the scenes on a lot of things, but he's never satisfied with just 
one side winning. He wants both sides to lose, right? The good and the bad of any of any particular argument. And where I think sometimes we can run into his, you know, clutches is when we forget that the people that we are so against because of what they're trying to do, which is objectively wrong and objectively disordered, we lose the sight of the fact that they are God's kids too. And I think that's the part that is the extra burden that the Christian has is, is like, we have to recognize as we do this work, as we implement these strategies, as we have these legal proceedings, that the people on the other side of the, the, the desk or whatever the circumstances are also God's kids and that God desires them to be, to enter into a relationship with them and, and experience the, 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 the beauty of salvation, et cetera, et cetera. And that is an extra burden that not everybody has, right? Not everybody has that, but we have to carry that. I don't think you can be successful if you don't approach it from that standpoint. Do you know who Chloe Cole is? Mm-mm. Okay. She's a girl. She's about 19 years old now. She's, she's out there. She's all over the place. You can Google her and find her. She's very well-spoken. She actually went through the beginning stages of, of medical transitioning from a girl to a boy and then decided that this was a horrible mistake. And so now she's speaking out. In fact, she's, she spoke yeah. to Congress a month or so ago. I just looked and her up she, and I do recognize her. Yeah. She gave such a heartfelt plea about, you know, please stop this because this is really hurting people. And one thing she did, which I thought was just tremendous as a, as a human being, and I'm assuming she's a Christian, but just a wonderful human being, is she looked at one of the witnesses who was for um, transgender medical treatments to affirm gender dysphoria. And she said, look, I don't, I, I don't hate you. And I, you know, I, I understand you. I have been where you are. And I, she was just so charitable mm. to the people on the other side. It made her message so much more powerful. I mean, these, a lot of these people who are falling victim to this, they're captured very early. If, mm. you know, when you're a little kid and you go to school, your parents make a decision about where you're going to spend seven hours a day for 13 years, right? And so you automatically assume that this must be a good place because mom and dad are pretty much letting me live here, right? So the That's lady or the man in charge are almost like surrogate parents. And so when they tell you things like, you know, little Johnny, it, you know, is a boy biologically, but his gender is a girl because that's what he, so he wears dresses and we have to be nice to little Johnny because people bully little Johnny. And that's, that's just not right. You're appealing to the innocence and the goodness of a child who just wants to be a good doobie and do the right thing. You know what I mean? Of course. And that is such a manipulation. Um, and a lot of the people who are doing this don't even realize they're doing it. It's how they're being trained. It's how they were brought up. And for some strange reason, they think that all this is good, that we're supposed to affirm. And, you know, I... I think it was Matt Walsh who I saw him speaking at uh, one of the colleges for the YAF and somebody asked a question, isn't it not polite if you don't affirm a person's, you know, gender identity? And he said, if you have a girl who has decided in her head that she's going to try to be a boy and you affirm that, basically what you're saying is, yeah, you made a terrible girl. You were awful at that. Yeah, yeah I agree. You know, you, you, you're, not a, you're not a pretty girl. You should try the other thing. Maybe you'll have better luck at that. 
there's not, that's abusive. I mean, mm. that really is. So the very things, and this is how the devil works. He takes the things that are bad and he somehow manipulates them to make them seem like they're good. And that's how we have drag queen story hour. I mean, it, it all comes back to third base. Yeah. And he also, <laughs> he also deforms those things that, that are good to make you feel like you're still uh, pursuing them, even though in many cases you're not. Yeah, I, l- I love the story that you mentioned about Chloe. I haven't seen that clip, but I can imagine what it looks like. It reminds me of, um, there was a case actually, I think in Texas, of a uh, an off-duty police officer who was trying to get go into her apartment and for some reason made a different, like chose the wrong door. Like she just got, I don't know if you remember this, but she went into the wrong apartment thinking it was hers. And there was somebody home and she pulled out a revolver and shot them and the person died. And she was horrified by this. It was her mistake. She, you know, this person died. You know, she killed this person on, inadvertently. It was an accident, uh, right. It was an accident. But I remember the court case for that. And the brother of the man she had killed, um, you know, after getting off the stand, walked up to her and hugged her and said, because, and he said other things which were very beautiful. He was crying and everything, but he, he, he could imagine, he could sympathize, empathize with her of what mu- she must be feeling, right? right. About like, I, I took somebody's life and I didn't even mean to do this. And I feel I'm going to carry this forever. And it was such a beautiful symbol of forgiveness from the heart. And I remember seeing that video and it went all over social. Um, but that's an example of what that is, right? That is, again, the burden of the Christian, right? Or maybe right. I, I, I'm saying it that way for our, for our purposes. I don't know if this person was Christian. I assume they were because they talked about God. But in any case, they're, they're very powerful moments. They're very beautiful moments. And they, that's this idea that I think oftentimes has far more impact than maybe just a, you know, a, a lawsuit or whatever. I think we have to do all of these things, but yes. I think we have to recognize the impact that some of those moments of real kind of heart to heart, you know, human to human relation can have on this, on this issue. No, for somebody to be full on sold on this ideology, they have had to have a number played on them over a long period of time. I mean, th- these people are victims too. Like I said, in my, in my oversimplification hierarchy of the people on the other side of this issue, you know, you have the people at the top who know this is not good. Uh, we're, yeah. we're probably never going to meet them. The middle managers and the ones at the bottom, they're all being used um, for mm. the most part. And it's, it's sad. So we yeah. have to look at them as victims. And I think part of the fix on this is going to be that, you know, a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of young people who go through surgeries and realize that now I'm not a man and now I'm not a woman and I'm a, I'm a eunuch and my body is completely messed up and I don't identify as anything. And I'm so completely depressed. You're lost. Um, yeah. They're going to have to sue everybody who allowed this to happen because this, just, I mean, this just shouldn't even be legal. It's unbelievable to me that in California, you have teachers who are fighting with the administration and the school board to say, I don't want to lie to the parents of my teachers and keep them in the dark about major psychological issues that are going on with their children. Um, it's hmm. just, it's, uh, it's. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's uh that's a heavy burden. Now, there was a lawsuit mm-hmm. that just, um, I don't, I, it's somewhere in the middle of the case, but a uh, federal court ruled that two teachers, four of the two teachers 
It's in San Diego <clears throat> County. I think it was Escondido. I'm not 100% yeah. sure. They fought because they didn't want to lie to the parents. Um, oh, they didn't yeah, want to hide gender this. transitioning. Yes. And yeah. they, they, got a, they got a green light from a federal court. So hopefully, you know, some of this stuff has to make it all the way up to the Supreme Court. For and the life of me, I don't understand why they don't take half of the things that come their way, but that's a Yeah, because there's, there's only nine of them, I guess. They can't get to everything. I have no idea. Um, <laughs> yeah, don't, don't get me started on the legal process because I'm actually right. very, very attuned to the legal process, um, and uh, there's a lot there that we could do uh, better about. Now, a uh, question for you that relates to um, your perspective on two things. So I know that... You, uh, your organization has a kind of like an FAQ um, of questions that parents should ask of their educators. That's like yes. one of the tools that you have. I tried to actually download it on the site, but I wasn't able to for some reason. I don't know whether it was me or, or maybe something with the site. Mm, but take a look. But um, I'm curious if you could sort of address what parents should, could be doing based on this conversation. Uh, with respect to this issue, and maybe particularly in states that have, you know, who are the pioneers, to, to use your point, like a California, maybe like a Massachusetts or uh, Washington, states like that. And then the second question is what, because I know you're Catholic, what should the church in the United States, maybe clergy specifically, like me, what should we be doing either differently or more of or less of perhaps in this entire conversation? Like, give me your sense of of how you view those two questions. Okay. Well, first of all, um, Protect Our Kids was founded in 2019 before COVID because uh, comprehensive sexuality education, also known as gender theory, started um, being taught in public schools in 2016 because of the California Healthy Youth Act. Um, When protect our kids started having conferences all over the state. It's interesting. It's the grandparents that show up at these conferences and want to know what their grandchildren are, are uh, seeing in school. Not as much as the parents. And you mm. might think all oh, of the grandparents are more old fashioned, but I, I would differ on that opinion. I think the parents have been um, almost inculcated into this idea that they're not living the the proper life if they're not busy on their hamster wheel 24 seven. So every kid's got to be in five different activities and I've got to drive three different kids to three different schools. I've got intramural sports, I've got dance and gymnastics, and we got to study for this and we got to prep for that. And you, and they're so busy. They, you, you tell them something like, Hey, do you know that your te- your kids are being taught, you know, about sodomy and, in public schools and they just look at you like, yeah, I don't have time for that. You know, you're crazy and I don't have time for that. And they don't. The grandparents were very, very active and involved and curious. Um, and, um, but with COVID that shut everything down. And so then we were no longer able to provide these conferences around the state. So we started to create content for our website. And one of the things that we have right now is called uh, back to school questions. Every parent should ask. And it's, it, you can download it off of our website, as you mentioned, and I'll go check that after this podcast. Um, there are seven, seven questions, and they involve what we call the triple threat. So that's critical race theory, gender theory, and social and emotional learning. And we didn't touch on social and emotional learning. Remind me, because we should. Yeah, for sure. Um, we'll, we'll the tell library what... books and curriculum, mm-hmm. student surveys that actually come from the CDC. So they come from the federal government. 
And they ask a lot of very intrusive questions about drug use and sexual activity and things that are going on in your home. Um, clubs that um, students are often recruited into and then um, indoctrinated into certain political ideologies. And then what you can do to opt out. So these are there are seven important questions. Um, and just get your hands on that and share it with your kids, friends, parents, and, and make plans to all go to a board meeting, a school board meeting together, because uh, there's power in numbers. And if you show up and you all understand the same information and you're good people and God wrote the Ten Commandments on your heart, it doesn't matter what your faith is, you are going to want some answers to these questions. And what about the church? Um, you know, I'm going to give you a wimpy answer. It's kind of above my pay grade. Uh, I've, I've given this a lot of thought. I understand that as a Catholic, the you know minimum requirement is mass. And I know some parents get upset if a priest talks about abortion and the homily because they don't want their seven-year-old hearing about this because they haven't had a chance to address it with them in the home yet. So the, I feel you know, I, my heart goes out to these priests who are trying so hard to do the right thing and bring this up. What they can do is they can contact Protect Our Kids and ask for a speaker to come to their <coughs> church. Mm-hmm. And if they can pull together a group of people on a weeknight um, who want to hear this and want to get a presentation about what's happening in public schools, we if we can't do it ourselves, we can find somebody who can do it for you. But really, the first step is the parents need to know what's going on in public schools. And actually, on our website, we have um, toolkits for pastors. And um, w- one of our people put together an actual booklet on how to start your own homeschool. Now, I homeschooled my kids K to 12, all four of them. So I know a lot about that. But it's it's not as difficult as most people think. And so if you're a pastor and you have a parish hall or some empty space where you can put a half a dozen kids and they can all use the same curriculum and be signed up with one of these Catholic programs, um, satellite program like a Seton Home Study or a Mother of Divine Grace or a, you know, um, Queen of Heaven Academy, then, you know, you can, with a handful of kids, you can start your own little school right there and save some souls. I mean, it's, it, there's a lot that can be done. But the information is the most important thing. If you don't know what's going on, then you don't feel moved to act. And when you do find out what's going on, most people get pretty, pretty involved and they either pull their kids out of public school, find some alternative, you know, way to, um, teach their kids, or they end up getting very involved at the local level in the school board meetings and in the, you know, the town council. Um, meetings and there's a lot that can be done. Yeah, my advice for um, thank you for that. My, my my advice to my fellow deacon and priest and bishop brothers is um, to to advance the notion more clearly and prevalent, prevalently, not just in homilies but everywhere of the importance of living an integrated Catholic life, being Catholic everywhere. Right. I had a conversation recently in a kind of a parish meeting. We're bringing some of the parish leaders together and somebody who I like very much said, you know, she was talking about a a youth program and she said, well, my goal for this youth program is to, you know, have these kids uh, get confirmed and then stay connected to the parish. And 
become lectors and become, you know, extraordinary ministers of communion and, you know, maybe even start a ministry and all that. And I, and I thought to myself, I said, well, that's beautiful. I mean, sure, we should want that and great. Like we should have them be very active in the parish. I said, but I'd like for them to be Catholic at the supermarket and to be Catholic on on the highway, like, Mm -hmm. you know, as they're driving their cars and on social and, and because the paradigm has shifted in a way, right? The culture, and I don't know if it ever did, but certainly not today, the culture no longer supports or reinforces a vision of the world, a vision of reality that is grounded in God. So the idea of having somebody continue within the parish is wonderful, but if they only live their faith in the parish and not out in the world, that's not good for them, nor is it good for the rest of us, right? Because we need them to go do their part. That's how God works. He sews all these things together. And so to me, I think advancing in preaching and in uh, formation and in all the different ways that priests and deacons and bishops touch the world, this idea of really living this 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 Catholic integrated experience everywhere, really discovering, you want to talk about identity, really discovering the fullness of who you are. That's the, the idea. And then taking that, you, you almost don't have to say anything beyond that, right? Because if we're living this sort of truly integrated Catholic life, and in all these different spheres of influence, we're operating that way, like things get better, right? And so I don't know, that, that's what I think about it's a lot. It's kind of a theology of the body when you think about it. Is, it, it is, it is. It's God yeah. gave you a body and he gave you a soul. And those two things are connected. They're, they're inseparable. And he gave you the body so that you could look at your body and know how to love. And, that, and that's not just sex and procreation. But it's also nurturing and it's, you know, it's, it's hunting and gathering and chopping wood and baking bread. I mean, like, it's that simple. Mm. And that doesn't mean that women can't work or go to school, but all these things are, are relatively new in the last 150, 200 years that we're now acting like everybody has a right to. Um, it's, it's really kind of interesting. Modern feminism is, and that's a whole, you know, you could probably do 10 shows on that. It, it, it really is. I've done, I've done a number. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Go ahead. It's very damaging. It's, it's very damaging. Um, the, the, uh, what was it? Uh, Pope St. John Paul II um, on the dignity of women. Is mm-hmm. that it? He's, he has uh, some really good. I, I never learned this growing up, but when I read his encyclicals, much later in life, I just, I couldn't even believe that my parents didn't teach this to me because it was like, wow, it is such a beautiful thing to be a woman. I had no idea what a gift it is. Um, you know, yeah, I, we the, have the, superpowers that you guys sure. don't have for and you sure. guys have superpowers that we don't have and we should be in awe of each other and Amen. we should use our gifts to complement each other and raise our families in love. And, you know, too many people are turning away from that. And unfortunately, a lot of them, it's not their fault. They're, they're, they're falling in with a bad group of people who are indoctrinating them yeah, in a bad way, not a good way. It's, it's, yeah, it's really lovely, that idea of the, the sort of how supernaturally powerful these sexes actually are in their own right and how they complement one another. And the discovery of that can be like just a total paradigm shift, right? When you come across this and you really understand it. And it's just, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a miracle. It's yeah. a miracle. It's a and miracle. And what do we want to do? The modern culture wants to erase all of our differences. Wants and, to, and yeah. Make us non-binary and fluid. I mean, 
Yeah, it, it's it, a lot it, of destruction is what it is. It's the destruction of the family. And Marxism, it, re- it requires that. It requires to, get, to take over the media, education, government. Like, there's, I think there's like five things. But the last, or actually in the family, they want to redefine marriage, which they've done, man and woman, which they're doing, baby, which they've done, and sex which they're doing. So our children are really, they're, you know, they're at stake. We have to protect them, which is what protect our kids is all about. I started the show by saying it's tough to be a parent, but in reality, it's just tough to be a kid. Right. Um, You you know, because a lot, you you don't have the benefit of, of wisdom to even understand this, uh, these sort of things that are movements all around you. But, you know, I think it's important for us, particularly those who are Christian and who, who, who share a faith in the triune God to recognize never to lose hope, you know, that as terrible as these things are, the extent that the fact that any of these things happen, um, you know, God is in control and he is allowing in some respects for reasons that we may not yet understand, but they're also like a clarion call for us to you know, yeah, take a look at our bodies and realize that if our bodies are just sitting on the couch or on TikTok, well, they're not really being used. They're not really being put to the fullness of what, you know, God created them for. And so combining our mind, our spirit with our body and going out into the world, living that Christian life is a way of, and speaking truth with love every, in every corner of the world. Like that is the, the, the gospel, you know, commandment that is the commission Mm -hmm. rather that we're all called to do. And we, but we can't lose hope about this stuff, right? We, we have to remain hopeful. I didn't say optimistic, but hopeful that um, as long as we're participating with God and following, you know, the steps that he's laid out for us in scripture and throughout the teachings of the church, et cetera, that, you know, God, Christ is already victorious um, yes. and, and we're participating in that victory, right? So we have to remember that hope and that inspiration that the Lord calls us to. And, and also never forget, and maybe this is more my point than, than, than specifically, um, uh, you know, some of these other organizations that we've been talking about, but never forget also that, you know, we have a responsibility to God's children, all of them, right? And that sometimes it's really hard and sometimes you're not called for that one particular person because that's just not you, but we have to give, look at all people, um, you know, with dignity because they, they possess it, right? With the dignity of the human person, even if they're dead opposed to our way of life, dead opposed to what is good for them or for us, we, we, we can't forget that, forget that either. Uh, Katie, I know you wanted to say real quick about SEL too, just give, yes. give a note on that. And then I want to, I want to wrap us up. I want to make okay. sure people have a way to, to get in touch with you as well, but go ahead. So social, uh, social and emotional learning, SEL uh, brought to us by an organization called Castle Collaborative for Academic, Social, and Emotional Learning (C A S E L). Um, it's basically replacement parenting. Um, mm. it, it 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 takes over the parents' job and teaching values and conflict resolution and um, it's almost like church. Um, the kind of things that you might learn at the kitchen table on a Sunday morning with your family having breakfast, the kind of discussions that you might have are starting to happen in the classroom, but with a political and ideological bent towards the people who are designing these spaces and, and taking in hundreds of billions of dollars 
to have the, you know, the, the, the prerogative of running these spaces. So it's a total conflict of interest, but they're basically raising our kids with value and their truth, their truth and telling, you know, and they say things to kids like, you know, you're, you are really smart. You're probably smarter than your, your parents because you've, you've been brought up in an age of technology. You were born with an iPhone in your hand. Your parents uh, didn't necessarily have that benefit. So you know, you are faster, you're quicker, you're more efficient, you're this, you're that, you know, they, they puff the kids up and then they, and then they bring them down and say, you know, you're so smart that you can think for yourself. You don't have to think, you don't have to let your parents tell you what to think, but then they tell you what to think. <laughs> yeah. Which is, so, that's at the root of a lot of, uh, you know, what Pope Pius X called the, the synthesis of all heresies, which is modernism. Mm-hmm. Um, at the heart of a lot of that thinking is this idea that only the new, only the future, only the innovative, only the advanced it, it, or the most current is the best. That's part of that thinking. But we know, especially as Catholics, we know that it's all about ever ancient, ever new, right? It's both and, and we don't discard the things from the past. We don't throw away the teachings or the principles that we've, that, that we're building on top of, nor do we say, oh, this thing that I just learned about today is bad just because it didn't happen in the 16th century. We've got to be ever ancient, ever new. But that idea of modernism that if it came before, this is automatically superior. That That is like one of those strands that's a core characteristic of that kind of way of viewing the world. And it sounds like what you just described sounds almost like a, um, a way to replace the dinner table conversation. You know it what I mean? Like, like all the little small stuff that comes up, but in comes the up between parents moments. and kids, the teachable mm-hmm. moments. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's like a, uh, like a system to, to replace the teachable moments. And yeah, that I, I'm not, I wasn't familiar with that, um, with that approach. I mean, it's logical as part of that, of the overall strategy, but it's still chilling to, to it's hear about ethics it. and values. That's the thing that's, that's concerning. Mm. Um, so that, you know, we used to go home and say, there's a bully at school and he's, you know, punched me in the nose. What should I do? And the parents would tell you how to deal with that. And now you're in school and you talk to the teacher and they tell you how to deal with the bully. And it depends on who the bully is. If the bully is a black kid, then you know, you're more privileged than the black kid and you got to give the bully some slack. Or, or if the kid is gender fluid, same thing. If they are BIPOC, black indigenous people of color, or in the LGBTQ alphabet, if they have, if, if any of their identities start with any of those letters, the bully wins and you have to, t- you have to take a back seat. And this is how, this is kind of like the delivery mechanism on how they're getting all this other stuff in there. It's fascinating. Wow. Yeah. wow. And a lot of thought went behind it. And as you said about modernism and um, uh, Pope Pius X, that's why the enemy is destroying our history. I mean, when we started this conversation, we talk about freedom. Freedom meant something entirely different to the founders of this country than they mean to even the Republicans in that House of Representatives today. Their mm. idea of freedom is Freedom to do what you, you do you, I do me. It's a, that's not freedom. That's in a lot of respects, that's slavery. Yes, Um, it is. In order to get rid of the old definition of freedom in accordance with the natural law, they have to tear down history. And that's why you see statues coming down and you see history being rewritten and you see, um, you see uh, ethnic studies replacing 
real history and you see, um, what's the name of that curriculum? Gosh, I don't, I can't imagine why I don't even have it at the, it's a uh, New York Times history. Oh, 1619? Yes, 1619 Project. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's it, it's a question of the lens, right, that we're using to look at things through, and um, y- you know, jettisoning this idea that we have a sort of a shared history, and let's look at the good, the bad, and the ugly together, and just sort of focusing in on one particular attribute and having that be the 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 point of view from which we view all history. I think that is you know part of the problem because I do want to learn about you know, uh, Sojourner Truth. And I want to learn about, uh, you know, Susan B. Anthony. And I want to learn about, you know, right. all of our black history. I want to learn all of those Absolutely. things. And I want to learn things that even if they weren't good, which there was a lot that wasn't, I want to yes. do all that stuff. But the starting point that this is the lens, everything should be looked through mm-hmm. is itself a, a, a kind of a dogmatic statement. It is itself kind of a religious statement. Right. And that's, I think, where you said it earlier, it's kind of like a religion. That's this idea of lesser gods for me that we're replacing a lot of things, including religion, but we're not replacing it with like a you know video game. We're replacing it with another religion. It's just right. it, it just has different trappings to it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, Katie, how can folks you mentioned, I think, a couple of times, but I just want to make sure how can folks keep track of what Protect Our Kids is doing, what you're up to next big things, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, we have toolkits on our website at www.protectourkidsnow.org. We have toolkits for parents, for teachers. We will help teachers get out of the the teachers unions so they don't have to pay dues anymore and support all this nonsense. Um, tools for pastors. Uh, we have a podcast that comes out weekly. Um, it's called Say What? Uh, and that's with our president, Mark Schneider, and co-founder, George Roska. Uh, we have videos on our YouTube channel, Protect Our Kids. We have videos on our website too. We also have brochures and you can download several of the brochures. Here's a couple of them right here. Off the, and you can download these, print them out for free, give them to your friends. You know, like I said, there's power in numbers. And if you tell a friend and a couple of friends and you all get together and you go to a school board meeting, before you know it, you'll start making some making some noise and seeing some progress. It's happening in California. I'm, that's where my hope is coming from right now. My, my earthly hope is California is doing some amazing things. And I never, I kind of gave up on California a couple of years ago, but I am very pleased with what's happening there. There's a lot of good people in California. People misunderstand California in a state of 39 million people. That's like you know, 17 states on the East Coast, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, you you can't throw... So even uh, if only 40% of your of your constituency are conservative, that's still, uh, you know, 16 million people. So. Sure, sure. And there's a lot of indep- political independence. And, you know, I think that this, this is an issue that transcends uh, political ideology, in my opinion, at least it should. This is something that everybody should be aware of and informed about. Um, and, and should be able to voice their thoughts on it. And, you know, again, from a Christian perspective, uh, just to, you know, remember, remind us always to, to do things with the real desire for good across the board for all people, um, you know, in the process. But Katie, thank you for, uh, for joining us on the show. Really appreciate it. Congratulations on all the work that you're doing, fighting the good fight, as St. Paul would say, uh, and keeping, uh, you know, giving parents an, an option to become informed and know what's actually uh, going on and 
helping to actually protect our kids, uh, our all our kids, right? Yes. Um, really, uh, really appreciate you uh, you coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. And if you're listening to my voice and Katie's, that means it's time to subscribe to the show. To share this episode in particular, maybe you know some parents and young parents in particular who maybe are just starting to send their kids off to school and they should be aware of the things that are out there that are going on in the world so that they can discern their approach to these issues. Um, So pray for the prosperity of all of that enlightenment and we'll see you again next time on Living the Call. This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.